Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Today, I'd like to welcome back Fred Luskin, who is a, a Stanford University psychologist, author of the book called Forgive for Good. And we've done one interview with him talking about the nature of anger, the grievance story, how we hold on to our stories. And this problem can go on indefinitely. Today, we'd like to focus on some of the methodology to let that story go and actually to move on. So Fred, welcome back. Great to have you on. Hello, David. And as I mentioned earlier, he and I have done workshops together. We're getting to know each other pretty darn well, which is great. I'm having a good time learning some more things and just hanging out a bit. But um, I'm really, a couple, your book has had a profound impact on many, many of my patients, hundreds of them, but also on me personally. And I'd like to discuss some of the methods that you use to actually achieve forgiveness. And I want to just say one thing that you point out again in one of the workshops is that forgiveness is a process. There's not really a beginning or end point. I thought that was a really key factor because one of the issues I deal with myself and my patients is that, okay, I forgive this person, it's done. And that's just not true. So in this process, as we go into this framework of actually how to forgive, I just like to keep that concept in the back of our conversation. You know, David, that's a, a, a really good point that you're bringing up. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's underexplored, the idea that forgiveness is a process. The, the people who have researched it have talked about the two components of that. First, there's a decision. And secondly, there's like the emotional unraveling. But the process um, starts with a cognitive, some cognitive decision that either my religion tells me to be forgiving or there's some social advantage to it or more commonly, I'm suffering so much by my own reactions that I need to find something new. So there's a decision that I need to make some kind of change or move ahead. And then there's the like the psychophysiologic emotional aspect of, okay, well, I made that decision. Now I have to do something about it. But it's a, you are so right, it's a process. But the biggest, um, the biggest change that comes when you make a decision, and if you're going to teach, if anybody's going to teach this stuff, this is the key thing to look for is people who haven't made that decision to forgive or who don't know about that decision to forgive. When the negativity towards an event or a person comes back or they get angry again, what they think is generally they're harming me again. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't forgive that they're still bad. It's still influencing me or, you know, here's another thing to be punished them for. If you've really made the decision to forgive and you see the negativity or the emotion or the physical tightness come back, what you then say is, well, I have to get rid of this emotion or deal with it in order to return to that state of equanimity or forgiveness that I know is my goal. That's the key distinction. 
So you're saying it's basically a very simple, not simple, but a very distinct cognitive choice to forgive. Yeah. Now, I've said this for a while. I'd like to get your thoughts on this. I mean, there's a genealogy of anger that I put out there that you have a circumstance that you blame, then you're a victim, and then you're angry. Then there's a real victimhood where you're assaulted or beat up or, or in chronic pain or perceived victimhood where somebody hurt your feelings or, or, or whatever it is. But there's still the blame, victim, and anger. My observation personally is that being a victim is so powerful that there's never a day that I'm going to wake up and say, I don't want to be a victim. I always want to be a victim. I like being a victim. Even now as I speak to you, it just feels good and powerful to be a victim. So I don't think anybody ever wants to give it up. And I think for me personally, I hit this about five years ago that I had to make that cognitive choice probably three to five times every day because it, because I go into the victim role and I don't think you can stop it or suppress it. At least I can't. So you, you talked about some techniques that I thought were very powerful. And the one I'd like to explore first is, which has been very powerful for me, is this reframing. You know, I'm, I'm the victim of something and trying to reframe the circumstances um, was one of the tools that's been helpful for me. If you could discuss that, that would be helpful. You know, the first part of what you said is, is one of the interesting things in, in terms of reframing, but this idea of I'm a victim. Um, we are, but we're not actually victims of what we think we're victims of. Like mo most people and almost everybody, of course, if your leg is killing you, like you're a victim of the pain, or if somebody hurt you nine years ago, you're a victim of their cruelty. But you're, you're, you're not just a victim of that because you're, you're a victim also of your attributions. You know, what it is that you say is the cause, what it is that you say is the, the reason. Those attributions can be changed. The, the other piece is that you're, you're a victim of low expectations because what I see all the time is... And, and what I, what I often, when I teach now, what I have people simply say, which is a, a kind of victim of low expectations is, well, the reason you're here getting forgiveness training is some pain came into your life, physical, emotional, loneliness. And as of this moment, you still don't know how to handle it. And that's it. Like, it's not necessarily the content of the pain. It I could see. be your leg, it could be your toe, it could be grandma, it could be you lost a thousand dollars, it could be, you know, your plane blew up. I mean, there's hundreds of things. But right now, the true sense of what you're victimized is, is you haven't figured out how to cope with your life. And your, expecta your expectations of what's possible are low. The, that, that's, it's, it's that cognitive mess that people come with, with of low expectations. And then the third piece is often what we're victimized by is our own biological reactivity that just keeps on announcing itself 
and and we don't recognize one that it's there to help us right but two that it's something that we can learn to master so it's again a some victimization of low expectations you know and and all that gets compressed into a kind of i can't figure this out so when you work with somebody in a reframing mode this top of the low by the way the low expectations is something i've not heard from you before because i've always been a victim of high unreachable expectations and so i'm always flailing myself because i'm not good enough not good enough so I've actually not heard this concept of low expectations before. Could you explain that, explain that just a little bit more? I'm, I'm a little confused on that. So I have low expectations, but I exceed them. I should be happy, right? right. But you see, you become a victim of low expectations? Well, I mean, the, the low expectation that you're, you're, you're capable of figuring it out, and if you're not, you're like bad or there's something wrong with you, the more reasonable, higher expectation is, I haven't figured it out yet. I see. And with more information or more work, which is always available, right. there's always something else out there. Right. The expectation is, I'll figure it out, that there's, there's still a road ahead of us. When you block off that road by saying, I'm inadequate, I hold myself to high expectation, you're not actually holding yourself to high expectations. You're punishing yourself for low expectations. Hmm. Interesting. That the high expectations are, I have time. There's good in the world that will reveal itself. That there's an answer somewhere, you know, like. Okay. Interesting. Right. So how do you how do you help people? So we do you use reframing as a technique? I mean, do you when you say the word reframing, what do you mean by reframing? Reframing is probably the mind's like great tool because you can come at whatever it is you're dealing with from so many angles. Okay. The key issue of reframing is everybody can, if they can get a moment to remember, they have flexibility of mind. I see. <clears throat> so you it's get not as a choice. Yeah, it, there's no perfect reframe. Right. What's gotcha. wonderful is the fluidity of mind and the flexibility inherent in that fluidity, which gives us freedom which again contributes to what we just talked about, which is there are other possibilities. Right. The next thing I'd like to talk about is what you call the unenforceable rules, which maybe is the one tool that's had the most impact in my life is what you call the unenforceable rules. And you explain it really nicely. I'd like to hear you explain what, I, what you call the unenforceable rules. Well, unenforceable rules were my unbelievable simplification of the field of cognitive therapy and it it, it just came to me um, you know that what we're doing and again this is a simplification of brilliant thinking but we're, we're making up rules all the time about how things should be okay 
And then when the rule is broken, we try to punish whatever it is that we thought broke our rule. So an unenforceable rule is simply a rule that we couldn't ever enforce. And what came to me, the metaphor that came to me that like did this was I was driving on 280 and I saw a police car like on the side of the road and it looked like it wasn't going anywhere. So I got it in my head that if I wanted to, I could probably go a hundred miles an hour and there's nothing this cop could do. <laughs> and I realized that I'm that cop. Like I have all these rules for how people should behave and yet they're going whizzing by me at a hundred miles an hour and they don't care that I have these rules. And the thing, the thing that solidified this to me in terms of unenforced rules was just like the cop, I write them tickets. Like all the people who break my rules, I'm like this cop sitting there in a dead car and I'm writing them tickets. Oh, you broke my rules seven dash four. You know, you were supposed to be on time and you wrote this rule nine dash three. You were supposed to tell me the truth. And I write them tickets and the tickets fill up my mind and I have these useless tickets, which nobody wants. And I think that I can 10 years later, hand them a ticket and say, you didn't respond to my ticket or. <laughs> so I realized that we're all police officers with this rule book and a dead car. Right. So, That's so very we, good. Have, we have this rule book. Everybody breaks our rules. The unenforceable part is we had no control over them anyway. Right. So we're always in a dead car. That that's that's what unenforceable rules are to me. Well, I think you pointed out, I think you also pointed out one commentary I thought was helpful for me on the unenforceable rules. I mean, it's fine to wish that your child would clean up his or her room um, and maybe have some control over that, but in general, well, you can't really force them to be quote cleaner people that's their choice so your point was that it's fine to wish that but when that wish turns into a demand in your own mind that darn it clean up your room and i had not heard the metaphor about writing the ticket okay you just giving your child a ticket for not cleaning his or her room up well that you're right i mean it means nothing so it's fine to wish that there's no problem with that but if you get angry about something that you have no control over, you're completely wasting, wasting your time and energy and life, life energies. And so I thought that was a very helpful um, process. I mean, for me personally being, I'll use the word perfectionist, the number of tickets I write to myself is pretty darn high. Of course, I project those concepts to under the people about the way they should act, et cetera. And that one concept of the un enforceable rule to me just was absolutely a life changer, really remarkably consistent. Um, I'd like to finish up with one comment that you made about gratitude as another way of dealing with uh, forgiveness. You know, the, the key word in all that you said was demand. Right. And almost none of us, myself included, are fully aware of how many demands we place on events, people, ideas, um, how often 
we are demanding things of the world, of ourselves, of, of things. And the only way we know we have a demand is when there's pushback. Okay. So they don't do what we want. It, when we go to Hawaii, it rains. Um, so demand is the key issue in unenforceables in all of cognitive therapy. Right. But the problem is it's only revealed to us that we have such things when we're emotionally disturbed. Okay. So what's hard for people, what the essential teaching is for all of us, is when you have a severe of any kind of emotional reaction to something, unless it's like, you know, right now somebody's beating up your kid or, you know, some actual physical threat that there's a proximate thing. Whenever you remember anything or you're talking to somebody in any non-toxic environment and you start getting angry or you start feeling scared or you start feeling totally alienated or depressed, it's because your mind is demanding something. Like that's the key finding and it shows up in an emotionally uncomfortable way because you're demanding something that's not happening right well going back to the gratitude you also talked about um doing a meditation where you think of somebody that you love and we've done a lot of family work now in the chronic pain project so let's just say you get very upset about your to your son or daughter about coming home late for curfew and often an argument ensues that you should have been home should have done this or you should be a neater cleaner person I think another strategy has helped me a lot is being grateful that you have a child, number one. Mm -hmm. And second thing is remembering that you love this person. And in the middle of an argument, that sort of disappears. So if you could just discuss briefly about using those two tools, need of action, to sort of calm down the nervous system. Well, I mean, you know when you use the word grateful, um, you know how imperative that is for mental health and for your body's ability to absorb um, stress and pain. Right. And um, it is, to me, the key beginning antidote to foster forgiveness that um, you can, well, let, let me even be more like, Forgiveness for me now is literally not about any event that's happening, but it's an entire life algorithm that we only don't forgive or get really mad at anything now at our age is if we don't have enough gratitude to balance out the suffering we've had we then walk around with the sense of we're owed. Okay. So it's, 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 it's not just whether your partner yells at you or doesn't make dinner or is insensitive. That's, that's a small piece and that can almost always be dealt with. 
what we're not recognizing is we're storing up a kind of asset deficit balance of our life. And because we're so weak in gratitude and so threat-centered that we barely notice the love and goodness that is sent our way, and our nervous system is so warped towards negativity, we never meet things with a true perspective. And so the key is for like rapidly building up the appreciation of goodness and positiveness so that we have a chance to see things clearly, if only for a moment. But I see now, I used to think it was more incident specific. Now I recognize it's, it's a snapshot of my life that at this moment, do I have enough recognition of goodness, of love, of bounty, of whatever, to be able to cognitively handle disappointment? Gotcha. And, and the same thing with physical things, you know? It's like, except for really horrible, intractable, terrible things, we need to pay rapt attention to all the times that our bodies work. Right. No, you're right. You, with neuroplasticity, as you repetitively programming gratitude, and to me, gratitude is not just affirmations. It's a really deep sense of what's good. And, you know, people use affirmations, for instance, in a way to sort of combat anxiety and anger. It actually doesn't really work. You have to actually feel the gratitude and embody the gratitude. And, when your child comes home and after curfew, I think it's really good to feel the love you have for your child first before engaging in the discussion. I also have a little mantra now that's come up in my head is that you don't want to suppress anger. It just is what it is. It's dangerous to suppress emotion, including anger. I agree with that. I do have a mantra called, what I, what I remind myself is no action in a reaction. When you're reacting, just zip it. I just zip it. And that little mantra has been really helpful the last um, several months. It, it hit me about three months ago. But yeah, I get angry, I get triggered. I get upset myself because I actually know better. I should be above being triggered. That's not going to happen, given that one up, sort of. But the reality is when I'm angry, there's nothing I can say that's going to be constructive. But I think also connecting to that gratitude relatively quickly is a phase of that that I'm actually going to start working on, working a little bit more after this conversation. But there's one other piece, and that you know as well, and I, I've even used your little expressive writing things a couple times where mm -hmm. I told people to write something down and then throw it away, you know, right. not hold it, because one, that teaches them to let stuff go, but two, the writing itself calms the nervous system. Right, right. I, I think that affirmation and other things like that would work would only work or have a chance of working on a calm nervous system right yeah i think affirmations in a calm state you're right can sort of build up that reserve right it, it is, i think it's a learned skill i think you have a meditation about think of somebody that you love and just let her just relax as your body feel it then you had us lie on the floor and think of somebody that you dislike strongly and then feel what that feels like and then continue to hold on to the person that you dislike, but try to get back the feeling of somebody that you love in that same moment. 
And it's, it's, a, it's a powerful exercise. Very, very powerful. Well, Fred, thanks a lot for the time here. It's been remarkably insightful. Again, every time I talk to you, your clear thinking comes right through in your book, comes through your conversations. And these are things that hopefully we'll have a few more podcasts coming up in the future to keep clarifying this. But I always learn a lot. I have a few things to take away myself today. And so I really, really appreciate your time. Can I, can I say one thing to maybe tie this together? Absolutely. My piece of it. Um, you know, we, we have tried to define over the years what forgiveness is. And, and I know you know our definition now is making peace with the word no. But that's how you can tie this together is something in our life gives us a no to what we want. So with health, it's I want to be healthy and I feel crappy. It's one thing to feel crappy. It's another thing to argue with it. So that, that's the secondary disturbance that you and I are both working with. And you recognize that that secondary disturbance so inflames the primary disturbance. Right. That it, and and the, you know, surgery for that disturbance, unless the secondary disturbance is taken away, is of little to no value. But I see that with psychotherapy as well. But it's the it's making peace with the word no like is that. the entree to healing. You know, it's like, okay, at least I'm not gonna fight the reality of my own life. That's that's where again you can start to heal, but that's what forgiveness is. Right. I'm not arguing anymore. I I'm 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 at least at at neutral with my actual life. But I wanted to say that just to tie it together. Well, I'll say that ties into the concept I've said for, for a while also is that, okay, you're in pain and, and I get it, but just think about a day that you're angry, but you're not in pain. I mean, what's that like, right? The, the day's a bad day. If you're angry, the day's a bad day, regardless of if you have pain or not. So then if you have pain inside that anger on top of that, then you, you have a really bad day. So if you're in pain and honestly can take away the anger part of it, your quality of life improves dramatically. But also what happens is that your body chemistry improves, the nerve conduction improves, the pain really does drop down dramatically. I know. Yeah, it says it's a physiologic change. You change body chemistry, the nerve conduction goes to half. It, it drops down the nerve conduction, so the pain actually physically disappears. Yeah. And, and you know, you're the one person I can say this to, even as a psychologist, this is a neurochemical problem with psychological implications, but chronic pain is, quote, not a psychological problem. It's a total body response. And totally. so, um, and that's why I enjoy talking to Fred. <laughs> really are on the same page as far as the role of psychology in trying to deal with chronic pain. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.